He was 25 years old. He combed his hair like James Dean. He was very fastidious. People who littered bothered him. She was 15. She took music lessons and could twirl a baton. I'm kid. I'm not keeping you from anything important, am I? No. She wasn't very popular at school. For a while, they lived together in a treehouse. In 1959, they murdered a lot of people. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? My fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello everyone and welcome to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 60, Badlands. The Bruce Springsteen song, of course. <laughs> Actually no, uh, the 1973 Terrence Malick movie. Oh, that's exciting for everyone. <laughs> Everyone's Some, favorite director. Yeah, um, you know, we like to mix it up. Right. And uh, sometimes listening to this podcast is a lot like going to film school. <laughs> I'd go so far yeah. as to say. Or going to Terrence Malick movies. <laughs> Mindless drivel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously uh, a lot of people probably haven't seen this one, but, you know, we're not just doing the mainstream hits here, people. Right. I don't know if you did, if you noticed our uh, 59 episodes leading Listen, up to this one. Anything that's a Criterion Collection Blu-ray, I would say, qualifies as a candidate for this show. I would go so far as to say, is anything ever Okay. Yes. Qualifies. I would agree with that, too. It's a good point. So, yeah, I mean, we are aware that a couple weeks back, there was a little bit of a snafu going Issue? on with yeah. our iTunes uh, feed. Yep, getting a lot of complaints via text message. Hopefully... Uh, They're like, you begged and begged and begged me to subscribe, and now I'm getting all these unwanted downloads. <laughs> and I don't mean the weekly episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we don't know what the problem is, and we don't really know if there's anything we can do. Hopefully it's over by the time you're hearing this. Yep. Uh, well over. I mean, right. we had already... You know, recorded the last episode before this all started. It's happened to me with some other podcasts that I've been subscribed. It to happened me, to me with this one. I only got three. I only got hit with three downloads, though. Yeah, I mean, it happened to me too. I think probably okay. everybody got hit with it a little bit. All right, but it, I, I don't know. We don't know if it's an iTunes problem. Well, or... uh, a Podbean listener told me that there was no issues, but yeah, it could be the app. Who knows we that know. purple podcast app? So I mean, just. Cancel those downloads as they're happening and you know, delete them and move on. I think you'll be fine. It didn't continue to happen after the first incident. Yeah, me. I only had one incident, so. Um, but anyway, subscribe if you can, <laughs> if you're not already, because you never know. You could always get 50 downloads yeah, just which randomly. Yeah, for everyone, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're really hoping that this doesn't hurt our download numbers or our subscriptions, but, you know. 
It is kind of a, an inconvenience for everyone, I we guess. We understand the outrage. The show is free. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. I mean, How much effort does it take right. to just delete those? It's a lot of hours we're pouring into this thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, follow the show on Twitter, at GreatestPod. Got some pretty cool stuff coming up yes, that I'm excited about. Definitely. And you never know when we're going to do like a random movie like Badlands that you can learn a lot about if you haven't seen it. And maybe hopefully check it out. Yeah. So I guess that'll do it. And we'll see you next week. Right. <laughs> this was another another good up. Okay, so Badlands uh, is kind of now regarded as like this work of great significance from the great time period in America, American cinema history, the 1970s. It's like one of those touchstone type pictures that, you know, really... Uh, defined an era in a sense obviously not nowhere near the kind of you know box office reach as something like the godfather or something but this is like one of those movies that they've you know are preserving right um, forever kind of thing i'll say this all for, that crap since i had never watched this going into it a uh, lot of like iconic like shots and scenes in it that you just see through various whatever video montages that you've seen in your life like uh the part where he's hiding underneath that thing that he built in the ground and lifts it up and is like looking out from it the, obviously the famous one is like him walking with the shotgun draped over his two shoulders with yeah. like the moon in the background but i just i recognize like a lot of the scenes just from seeing them pop up in various uh montages and stuff yeah um this was uh the first movie that uh, Malik directed on his own after you know having written some stuff that got directed by other people and he wasn't really happy with it and unlike a lot of the films that would come after this one for his career it's much more uh, plot based than you know most of the other movies that he's made and you wonder if like you can see some of the signs in this one of like where we were going the framing of shots obviously there's a lot it's very like heavily narrated like a lot of his other films yeah but, like the overdubbing but yeah i mean the cinematography in this is kind of like known for how groundbreaking it was oh, at yeah. the time it's kind of got this timeless uh classic look well that's the great thing about all the terrence malick movies is like Somehow the cinematography of everyone, and I'm sure this was the way it was at the time with this one, but every Terrence Malick movie that I see, I'm always like, why does this look so much better than everything else that exists? Like, how is this happening, you know? <laughs> so, when first talking about this movie, uh, the title of the film, Badlands, it's like, well, what is what exactly are Badlands? I mean, there's a Badlands National Park. Is it, like, past the darkness on the edge of town? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, scientifically, I guess you would say, badlands are a type of dry terrain where softer sedimentary rocks and clay-rich soils have been extensively eroded by wind and water. They are characterized by sl steep slopes, minimal vegetation, lack of substantial regolith, and high drainage density. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. Rocks and shit. <laughs> Bleak, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like... Desolate. It's one of those things, like, I, don't, I wouldn't go so far as to compare it to, like, when that politician gave the definition of pornography, but I would say, <laughs> like, with Badlands, it is, like, 
I don't know what it is, but you know when you see it. All right. Thing. Yeah, that's fair. But like, where so exactly? Stop asking us. <laughs> where exactly this is? I mean, Montana. Yeah. I guess has rural. It's, it's kind of like one of the last. Like the concept of these kind of lands is kind of like one of the last holdovers from like a wild west kind of an infinite possibility unsettled areas wide open always spaces. mountains way off in the distance that you're yeah. trying to get to um obviously there's the double entendre with the place that they're at but also you know what they're doing kind of quote-unquote bad right acts or whatever yeah but the story that as is at the center of the film is kind of something that's been utilized throughout pop culture plenty of times yeah uh, whether it's music or i can think film. of some songs yeah and it's all it all kind of stems from a guy named charles starkweather uh who was an american spree killer who murdered 11 people in the states of nebraska and wyoming in a two-month murder spree between december 1957 and january 1958 although all but one were actually killed between about eight days in 19 in january of 1958 um, so it was like a lot of killing and then just being on the run for a while? Well, there was one, and then there were ten more towards the end of it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so basically, it it's kind of like the, yeah. the one at the beginning is kind of a stretch to really include it as part of the spree, I guess. But Starkweather was accompanied during his final ten murders by his 14-year-old girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate. Starkweather was 19 at the time. Uh, he was executed 17 months later while Fugate was sentenced to life in prison. She served 17 years before her release in 1976. She is still alive now and lives in Michigan. So that's kind of like the basis of where this film comes from. It's a little bit different in some respects. They tried to change enough to like avoid a potential lawsuit or anything like that since uh, Carolyn Fugate was still alive at the time. Oh, boy. Um, she was still in prison though in 1973. But oh wow! Wait, what year did this come out? Wait, okay, this came out in 73. What, when? I, sorry, my the right question is, what what year was the event that this the real life event? Uh, in the 19, 50s. Yeah, 1958. Okay. And this film is set in 1959. Um, but Malik said <laughs> that's like the Vanilla Ice, you know, that change to the Queen song. <laughs> Malik said of the time period for the film, uh, I tried to keep the 1950s to a bare minimum. Nostalgia is a powerful thing. It can drown out anything. I wanted the picture to set up like a fairy tale outside time. And so, you know, keeping that in mind, you kind of do have this kind of vague idea that it's taking place in like the 50s, but you never feel yeah like locked in on that. That's true. Right. I mean, a lot of the time... They're kind of not surrounded by uh, normal communities in society. Right. Yeah, I mean, even like where the film starts out, you're kind of just like, this is so like desolate. Right. It could theoretically be any time between like the 30s and the 70s, yes. really. So we first introduced to Holly, played by Sissy Spacek. Uh, she's 15 years old. She lives with her father. Uh, her mother has died a few years beforehand. Now, how old? Was Sissy Spacek in real life when she played this role? Uh, I believe she was actually 22. That's stunning. She does look insanely young. Yeah, they kind of uh, had to like you know play around with the ages a little bit, but with Sissy Spacek, they're I mean it's completely believable that she's 15. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, she's just I, it, she's it, it is like kind looking. of a shocking thing. 
you know yeah <laughs> yeah i mean she's like i mean not to get like too down this path yeah. but i mean she's kind of got like an almost albino type she, appearance and her father's like look yeah kind of i don't know italian looking yeah. or something it's like kind an of olive complexion yeah <laughs> uh her relationship with her dad is kind of strained i guess you would say now her dad like paints signs as an as an occupation yes that's an interesting just movie occupation <laughs> yeah i mean it was 1959 i mean you know, there weren't really like a lot of computer jobs. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> people had to do other weird tasks. No, that would be a great gig, I guess. Yeah, he's just trying to raise to his daughter anybody. on his own. He doesn't know what to do. Yep. Uh, and she kind of she's a handful. Well, yeah, she, she's kind of an oddball. She lives in, or they live in Fort Dupree, South Dakota, which is kind of like a dead end town. I think at one point. Later in the film, she sees like the far off lights of Cheyenne and is acting like that's like the, the biggest big city, city in the yeah. world. Just like, you know, it's like, oh man. Yeah. And she, Sissy's kind of, or Sissy, Holly's kind of living kind of a typical bored teenager existence until she comes across uh, Kit, played by Martin Sheen. Oh, right. The Sheen, trash man. Sheen, I think, was actually 32 at the time, and they changed his character's age to be. 25 when it was originally going to be 19 to match oh, uh, yeah. Starkweather's actual age at the time. But they bumped it up a few years because they didn't think it would be believable, I guess, to have Sheen playing a 19-year-old. Yeah, that would have been a bit of a stretch. He's like a garbage man who bears a strong resemblance to James Dean. <laughs> it's quite yeah. a combination. Um, He's got kind of like a uniform that he's always wearing, <laughs> like the denim on denim with the white T-shirt. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of your borderline stereotypical 1950s greaser style right uh not unlike you know characters that his sons would be playing in the outsiders in the outsiders right. <laughs> and he takes like an immediate liking to holly and they kind of have this weird it, it seems like he connection uh realizes pretty quick that he can kind of like explain away anything to her and she'll be like oh okay it's <laughs> like yeah, I work in garbage, you know. I figure that's what I can just do it right now and then acting like, you know, he's got other prospects. Well, yeah, I think and she does scoff at the garbage thing, but she doesn't completely write him off as a loser. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea here is that she's very uh impressionable and naive. No, I would agree with that. Yeah. And she's kind of easily impressed by Kit who can talk a good game. Yeah, smooth talk. So it's very it's kind of a very uh, stick. I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. It's kind of like a very tenuous thing at the start because it's kind of the relationship between the two of them is not overtly sexual at first or anything like that. But I mean, you can't really, ju- you can't. It's you have a hard time justifying a twenty-five-year-old dude just suddenly, you know, hanging around with a fifteen-year-old. I think girl it's fair to say his motives are clear. I mean, it was. I will say this, it was a different time, and uh, you know, as much as some people might not want to accept it, age gaps between people that were dating back then were a lot bigger sometimes than people would be comfortable with now. Yeah, although... And girls you know, were a lot younger in some of these relationships. Her but, father definitely not comfortable with this, Yeah, but though. I was going to say, but 10 years is pushing it pushing it like right. a 25 okay. and 15 is probably even at that uh point. yeah i would th- also just because of how young she is it's just 
you know, you got to, there's that math needs to be factored into the formula. It's not just a straight 10 years. Well, yeah. Well, what I'm saying is I think like when it comes to the real life, uh, Starkweather and Fugate, their five year difference of 19 and 14 nowadays would be a little bit icky. Yeah. But probably wasn't that shocking to people at the time. Okay. In right. the, in the fifties. I, I at least I don't think so. No, I mean, uh, yeah, it, that's you kinda funny. hear a lot more about that kind of thing from that time period. But yeah, Holly's father not too happy with uh the relationship between the two and I think, you know, that's obviously I mean, they kind of the way the movie's set up, we understand that Holly is kind of the main character since she's narrating lots of this. Yeah. We we don't really see Kit do anything overtly terrible, so we're kinda like, Well, are they positioning Holly's father as like kind of He doesn't seem like a stable dude though either. No. Uh yeah, her dad's like, Well, he works in garbage and he's a decade older than you. <laughs> I don't like you hanging around this uh scoundrel. Yeah, I mean it certainly seems his response certainly seems justified in this. Yeah, instance. I would agree. Yeah. But I think what's kind of like masterfully done here is we continue to get Holly's uh narration, which is, you know, consistently very dreamlike. Oh yeah. Uh filled with romantic cliches. Like this ditzy girl kinda. And that's always like juxtaposed over Kit's uh increasingly violent, antisocial, bizarre behavior that she kind of, you know, is somewhat oblivious to that he, he's, <laughs> he's not only is this a 25-year-old guy and that's creepy, but then he starts to act in ways that are kind of red flags to probably you know, other adults. Normal people. <laughs> and so in response to uh, Holly kind of continuing to see Kit, Holly's father shoots her dog. Yeah, which she's is just like, an insane dad. I gotta keep hanging out with this dude, and he's like, "All right, well, my message isn't clear here. Let's take the dog out, and I'm just gonna shoot it in front of you." I mean, yeah. pretty horrible thing to do to your daughter. You would agree with that? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's it seems a bit over the top. Yeah. I mean, typically uh, in movies like this with this kind of scenario, he probably would just like beat her or something like that. But mm-hmm. they went for something like. St- not that like. Well, this is the chance now. Kit, it has an opening to look like a hero a little bit. Kind of. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, he doesn't really take advantage of it in the correct way. So, like the real action of the movie kicks off, you know, with Kit showing up at Holly's house with a gun and having her, you know, pack up her stuff because they're going to hit the road together. Holly's father, of course, is trying to prevent this from happening, and you know, Kit ends up shooting and killing him. Yeah, now the dating status of Kit and Holly at this point, not really that clear. They've been hanging out, but it's, I mean, was there a promise ring involved? What what level of dating are we at here? I don't know, but apparently Kit's taking it to the next level. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, <laughs> Holly's reaction to her father's death is definitely not like atypical you would horrible like horrified but she's not she doesn't seem happy she's not thrilled with kit yeah it's always and that's kind of how holly is positioned in this most of this film it's like she's kind of a somewhat willing bystander but she doesn't really actively participate well even her voiceover narration is just like 
Well, my dad's dead now, so I didn't really know what else to do. So I just figured now I'm with Kit for better or worse. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, okay, is that how that works? Yeah, I mean, for I guess as irrational as Kit's behavior is, he doesn't really ever do anything negative towards uh, Holly. Right. Like he doesn't yell at her or hit her or like force her to do anything. So it's kind of like... Well, he killed my dad, so... Yeah, I, I mean, know. it's like this passing off, like, you know, when you get married and your dad walks you down the aisle, <laughs> except in this case, your dad's just murdered by the man that you're going to be with now. Right. Uh, which is I'm the sure way it should be. we can all relate to, yeah. So now they're going to he- like head out on the road, and this is like the typical, like, crime spree on the road s- story that, you know, has been done many times. Um, Although, really, like, their first plan ends up being... To just go live in the woods, right? Yeah. I don't know like it, what the long-term plan there was, if that yeah. was something they were thinking they were going to do forever. Well, they, they get pretty forever. dug in. It's not like... Uh, they basically build like the Ewok village. <laughs> yeah, like a very elaborate treehouse right. with lots of other stuff going on. He's doing a lot of fishing with a net. <laughs> Some <laughs> big net that he built, I guess. Yeah, I mean, they're basically playing house... 24-7 in the forest now, you know, surviving off of fish and, you know, occasionally stealing chickens and whatnot. Now, and there's not a lot of uh, sex or romance in the movie between the two, but there is uh, one scene where basically it looks like we're getting the aftermath of it, and she's like, oh, was that it? What's all, what's all the big fuss about? And he was like, don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't really seem like, you know, maybe you put on the best performance. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, obviously for a young girl's first time, it's never going to be. No. You know, but, um, you know, they're dream- but outside of that. We don't really see them like be intimate really in any way. Like they don't really like kiss or anything, do they? There's the a little bit of that, but it's much later. Yeah. When things have really started to kind of turn. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, to the negative, like when it seems like they know their days are numbered. Oh boy, yeah. But um, some like their dream world is kind of shattered by these bounty hunters that kind of show up. Um, are we just supposed to figure that out that they're bounty hunters? I mean, well, that's the what one guy sees. Him. That's what Holly calls them. Okay, la- like in her narration. I mean, because the one not guy police. just sees him when he's trying to fish, and of course like a complete uh, douche, he has to pull out his gun and try to shoot a fish. Because <laughs> he's always just kind of like pulling out his gun. The, th- the whole thing with the gun doesn't really seem like it's based in reality. Like, he doesn't ever, like, restock ammo or anything. Or I don't even think they show him really loading the gun very often. Yeah, I mean, they wanted... I think Malik was talking about this, too, about how Kit kind of treats the gun almost like a magic wand or something in a fairy tale and just his anything that annoys him just his, like yeah his disconnection <laughs> from like what the gun actually does and like the consequences of the gun is kind of you know part of his character to be that kind of uh you know self-centered yeah so that guy sees him though when he's doing this and then like that's what leads to this group of dudes kind of leading a raid on their little yeah camp. And, you know, obviously what they're not prepared for is that Kit has set up, like, hiding spots and, you know, he's got, like, a rifle and he's able to get the jump on them and kill the three of them, basically. Right. But now they know that they have to, you know, 
be on the move again because now, you know, they're covers blown, hiding spots up. Yeah. yeah. So, not really. I guess not really knowing where to go next. They they drive out to some guy's place that oh. Kit knew from the garbage. Do you remember this guy's route. name? It was Cato. Cato. Yeah. Cato <laughs> Kalen. Um, God, Cato's life just seemed like a horrible. <laughs> existence Lives of in like just a complete shed? despair yeah <laughs> i mean his whole property is just horrifying right no and blu-rays at this time <laughs> what's he doing yeah i know what do you do for fun when yeah. you live by yourself he in can't the middle go to of nowhere stores? in a junk heap <laughs> and like i guess for whatever reason kit thinks that kato will be trustworthy i i think by this point it's known you know that they they killed uh um holly's dad holly's dad because what we kind of glossed over was when they leave holly's house they set it on fire and and try to make it look like they committed suicide in the fire but i mean the whole plan is ridiculous i mean even in 59 i don't think people are going to be falling for that they're only going to find one body one skeleton in there although it is cool to see like the little uh record your voice on vinyl thing or whatever yeah like the little booth for that yeah. It's just kind of like a neat little thing to see. Yeah, they like record. He he records a suicide message and then leaves it playing on a record player outside of a house that they set on fire. But it, yeah, well, it, everything's engulfed in flames. Yeah, it you catches know. on fire, <laughs> and it's like, well, no one's even gonna know about that, right? So, way to waste your time, Kit. <laughs> and I do want to point out, like, um, another variation of this story is told through. Uh, Oliver Stone's film Natural Born Killers mm-hmm. um where they go to get great lengths to establish that Juliet Lewis's character comes from like a very horrible home life that's oh yeah with her Rodney Dangerfield is that her dad? Yeah, incestuous yeah. father. Yeah. Um th- that is like a harsh <laughs> kind of like scene to take in what's going on in that movie. <laughs> yeah, when he's like talking about coming up to the shower to make sure she's clean oh, and all boy. That stuff. Yeah. Just like grabbing her butt, um, oh, and the, and and it's I think it's kind of shown a little bit and implied that like Woody Harrelson's character also had some sort of bizarre, horrible upbringing. So it's kind of like they give them like this justification why they would have this turning into these drive people. for violence. Yeah. Whereas in this film, as we kind of pointed out, like Holly's kind of on the peripheral of what's happening, and it's more like she's this passive uh, spectator to Kit's wild ride that he comes up right. with that sounds kind of fucked up but it's not oh i don't know it makes a weird noise sometimes so anyway back to kato though uh <laughs> yeah he, i mean did kit used to work with kato or yeah, what it was a, right uh, yeah and That's this is guy, all stuff is that, that is the guy from the beginning of the movie that he's with i don't remember okay <laughs> but it's somebody like you just basically have to learn this stuff from holly's narration because yes. she kind of explains everything but he at first kind of goes along with whatever Kit wants to do. He, but I mean, obviously, he knows that they didn't kill themselves in the fire. Everyone knows this by now. Everyone yeah. knows they murdered Holly's father. They, they've probably at this point heard about the bounty hunters. Like it seems like everything's building up. It's now. all over Facebook. Everyone knows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Cato's Facebook profile is oh, depressing. Um. <laughs> Eventually, though, he tries to, like, he really, like, really blows it, though. I mean, he he 
he's like walking out with them into like a field and then all of a sudden he's like letting them go farther and farther ahead yeah. and then he turns to run and well, what like, was happening why were they were just walking out just hanging around i don't know they were going to look at something uh-huh. or do something and you know it's obvious the kid that he's running to try to turn them in do or whatever something. yeah running back to his house i mean and so he shoots kato for i mean an unbelievable shot for a handgun from like no i think it was the right oh is it the rifle okay um but yeah he ends up <laughs> kid like, like hey, ends up running Kato. back over to him and then like helping him up and then like helping him into his house so that he can <laughs> yeah. just die in his bed yeah just his a shitty disgusting bed humiliating death for Cato. yeah i mean when he's still alive there's like flies and but stuff landing on his eyes all this stuff it's like holly is never really reacting to any of it she's like kind of talking to kit like uh oh well what's up with Cato? and kit's like i don't know <laughs> like that's their interaction after like he shoots him then like a couple of kids show up and kit ends yeah, up yeah why would them these go people be like hanging a, out with kato i don't i i don't know they were supposed to pick something up or something, something they it's bought off craigslist <laughs> then he ends up making them get into like a storm shelter or something, oh yeah and then he shoots into the storm shelter we, we're not really supposed to i guess we don't we never really we don't know, know if they were hit or they're still in that shelter today yeah i mean it seems unlikely that they were hit based on watching it happen after this we kind of get a little bit of a montage of law enforcement gearing up there's some narration explaining that there was like a a rumor that kit was going to hit some bank or something and i was just thinking like even when we were watching it i'm like well how would this rumor even yeah there's no indication of that they've never really robbed anything right right well yeah and also it's like well if it, I Although, think the way that she says it is word got out that Kit wanted to do this. It's like, well, word got out from what? Well, that's the thing. I mean, people No one's started, talking to them. Yeah. <laughs> Although it's like they kind of have become like celebrities a little bit. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, this is done Infamous, to show least, how yeah. they're whipping everything into a frenzy. And, you know, they're on the front of all the newspapers. Yeah, there's a big and, manhunt going on. And obviously, and the body count keeps rising. Yeah. Um, now, what was going on when they were living out in the woods forever? It's like... I. I understand that he was, like, catching fish sometimes, but it's like, yeah, you would think, like, why aren't they robbing a bank? Because it's like, what are they living off? Well, maybe that, you know, under some sort of bizarre moral code that Kid has come up with, because yeah. we'll see that kind of more in effect at their next stop, which is at a rich man's mansion, mm-hmm. where... Just a horrible job done by the maid here. She answers the door, and the guy seems, like, sketchy. She's deaf, right? We're, sp- yeah. we're supposed to uh, get that from it. But, you know, Kit's going into this whole thing of, like, oh, I got to check the pipes or something. <laughs> it's like, she's just like, I can't understand. I'm deaf. Come on in. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, Kit and Holly spare the lives of the rich man and his maid, but they take a bunch of shit. Yes. But he get, he like writes it out in a list and gives it to the guy. It's like, <laughs> oh yeah, here's all the stuff I took and I owe you one. Yeah, presumably yeah. I'm going to pay you back for it or you'll get it back or something, and including their Cadillac, which is, you know, kind of a smart move. They need to right. keep switching up cars yes. if they can. But yeah, it's kind of like this weird little detour in the film where they're just kind of waiting out this increased uh, law enforcement scrutiny. Like they're, they don't they kind of feel like they don't really know where to go at the moment. Yep. Someone else comes to the door while they're in this rich guy's house too. Yeah. Like uh, an architect, I guess, uh, who's played by Terrence Malick himself, which seems like, you know, it's not the most 
natural scene or interaction, I mean, it does seem like this whole sequence would raise some suspicions on, you know, the part of the architect. Yeah, but I mean, I guess it's kind of just like... He's like, all right, well, <laughs> see ya. I don't know, like, people had more of a sense of other people's privacy, maybe, yeah, back I guess then. So. They kind of yep. were like, well, I don't know what's happening, but... <laughs> And so now, you know, with supplies and, and the rich man's Cadillac, their plan seemingly is now to head to Saskatchewan uh, to try to cut through the Badlands of Which Montana. Which is where? I don't know. I don't it's even... in Canada. Yeah. So they want to get over the border. Over the border. Okay. They think that. Right. I guess that, you know, they think that that will. No passport needed. Set them free. Yep. Yeah, no passport needed back in 59, oh, yeah. especially right. somewhere in the middle of the country <laughs> like yeah. that. You know, and they kind of, this is kind of more of the. Terrence Malickian type part of the film where it's kind of a lot of shots of nature aimless driving through just the dusty barren earth you know and they're kind of they're kind of starting to unravel a little bit because it's like well Holly you know is 15 she's not fully really committed to this crime spree it's kind of just like she she ultimately gets fucking bored yeah, and is I the mean, issue. she really hasn't participated in anything. She just, like, when he tells her to run, she runs. When he tells her to hide, she hides. Like, she basically just goes along and kind of acts like Kit's a little bit of a nuisance, <laughs> you know? Well, I think for the first time, she's seeing that Kit doesn't really know what he's doing. Yeah. She was kind of believing He doesn't in... exude confidence. She was kinda... Well, he did, Yeah, but now he's it's kind of like, it it's bit. clear that, like, that confidence got them nowhere like they're they don't know where to go they're driving through nothing she's like i don't really feel like following you anymore they're seemingly like arguing a lot more and eventually you know they find this place and they're going to try to steal some gas from this guy uh out in the middle of nowhere he's doing some sort of work or something and he's got heavy machinery and trucks and stuff and you know at that moment a police helicopter shows up you know having tracked them down and Holly's just yeah. like, I don't want to go. This is the end for me. Yeah, he's, she's like, I'm good. Come on. Where are we going to go? Because before that, they were just aim- yeah, like driving towards the mountains. Kit's kind of started to talk about like, oh, I know we're going to get caught soon. You know? Like that attitude has kind of shifted a little bit. Or she says that he's kind of acted that way. Yeah, I mean, obviously, even though he's kind of delusional. He says things like, oh, I thought this might be the day when like the cops show up. Yeah. Although it is so weird that they run into that guy in the middle of the field. <laughs> There's like an is there like an oil drill there or something? I don't know. He's just doing some kind of work. Yeah. And then like you said, we just see the helicopter, the police helicopter come in from far away, like a two-man police helicopter. Yeah, um and Holly's like, "I'm good. I don't feel like running anymore. I'm just going to go with these cops." Yeah, I mean, even though like I was saying, like even though Kit is like delusional and kind of crazy i mean he's the older of the two i think he he knew from day one how this was gonna end mm-hmm. where i think she was kind of despite his great attempt at you know telling everyone it was suicide yeah i mean i think she was like blindly kind of believing in this idea that they were gonna run away and be free or that the, you know that they wouldn't have to live this kind of life forever but they could get away from it somehow and i think the realization at some point dawning on her that this is a pointless doomed thing kind of just you know weighs on her heavily and she's like i'd rather be in jail (laughs) than spend another second with you (laughs) basically (laughs) yeah and so after holly gives up this leads to like a police chase with um 
Although it's like, is there no way she could have argued this was that she was like kidnapped and he's been like abusing her? Well, yeah, I mean, we'll get to that. Okay. Um, because it's different than in real life. Oh. Kit is involved with like a big police chase, and eventually he gives up. He even shoots his own tire out. Like yeah. He, pull, he basically just pulls right. the car over at some point and just shoots his tire out to make it look like he had a flat tire, and that's why he had to stop. <laughs> and he just gives up. It's kind of funny, you know. Strange the rest way. of the movie is pretty weird from here. It's kind of like this is kind of like a, a a milder tease on the some of the ideas in Natural Born Killers, which is like the police and the reporters and stuff seem to kind of be in awe of him. Yeah, and he loves the attention. Uh huh. And he really plays up to it. At and first, the cops that that get him are kind of like, "Why did you do this? Like, what is your deal?" And he doesn't really have any answer. He's just like, "I don't know." Figured. What else to do? Like th- those types of answers. And as they spend more time with him, they they're basically like fans. Yeah, the one cop is like, "I'll kiss your ass if you don't look like James Dean," <laughs> which of course is a very strange thing to say yes. to another man. Uh huh. But well, not as many out men at the time. <laughs> you know, you have to say things like that under the guise of heterosexuality. And so, you know, they they take Kit in, and he gets his last. For some reason, they allow him and Holly to see each other again while they're all kind of waiting around for them to be shipped back out of this area that they finally got caught in. Which is and like, Kit you know, is just having like a time in this like hangar. Oh yeah, with all these people. <laughs> yeah, he's giving out yeah. like his comb hey, who wants and stuff my comb? as a souvenir. Who wants my- <laughs> yeah. And then you know, Holly kind of it's kind of like this thing where Holly is kind of maybe matured a little bit. She. She doesn't hate Kit or anything, but she's kind of seemingly grown past the point of loving him in this unconditional sense. You know, sense. be around him in any way. Um, ultimately, Although, Kit is executed uh, a few months later, gets the death penalty, and Holly just receives probation and ends up marrying her defense attorney's son. Yeah, so it all worked out for Holly. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately for Holly, this is just like a moment yeah, of time in her just life, like a brief and she can move kinda, on. Yeah, it was like a road trip for her. Although, what is it that Kit says to her whenever she is parting from him? He says something like, "Meet me somewhere on New Year's of some year." You know what I mean? Yeah, like, he's kind of acting like 1962. Yeah, or we're gonna have some like grandiose reunion. Yeah, I mean, I think that was like his final way of like pretending that you know he's not going to get caught yeah this is going to be fine and everything but i mean you know um yeah i know obviously like the real strength of terrence malick's films uh a lot you know a lot of times are compared to like visual poetry or something like that yeah i kind of found a a quote this was something that i had read uh, a while ago and it always kind of stuck with me and it just it in a weird kind of coincidence, it turns out that the person saying this is the late Bill Paxton. Oh yeah. Uh, this was a quote from, two, this too. from 2003, uh, about this film. Uh, did he ever work with Terrence Malick? Is he in the thin red line or something? I don't know. I don't think so. Okay. Hmm. But I mean, he's made films himself or yep. he made films himself. And, uh, you know, I think this was kind of just talking about, Malik's work on Badlands and it's he said it had a lyricism that films have only once in a while moments of a transcendental nature you've seen these kind of moments in other films they're really hard to pull off and usually they come off as pretension Malik knew how to set his characters against the landscape 
there's this wonderful sequence where the couple has been cut adrift from civilization. They know the noose is tightening and they've gone off the road across the Badlands. You hear Sissy narrating various stories and she's talking about visiting faraway places. There's this strange piece of classical music and a very long lens shot. You see something in the distance. I think it's a train moving. And it looks like a shot of an Arabian caravan moving across the desert. There are moments... These are moments that have nothing to do with the story and yet everything to do with it. They're not plot-oriented, but they have to do with the longing or the dreams of these characters. And they're the kind of moments you never forget, a certain kind of lyricism that just strikes some deep part of you and that holds on, and that you hold on to. <laughs> Botch that. Who knew uh, Bill Paxton was so deep? Um, yeah, and I mean, I I'm think... I'm not going to... I don't think I'm ready to say that these Terrence Malick movies don't come across as pretension. <laughs> Well, I think he's speaking about this one in particular. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, obviously the fight against... He didn't make it to song to song. <laughs> the, fight, <laughs> the fight against pretense is something that Malik has been dealing with you yeah. know, a lot right. more recently. But I mean, I think he took what is essentially, in a bizarre way, kind of a macabre way, a very traditional modern American story, this idea of just saying fuck it, and just heading out and doing whatever you want until you get caught and oh, it's yeah. over. Well, and for some reason that always strikes a chord. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's I guess it's kind of like it's it's kind of the representation of uh the hopelessness that I think uh a lot of people were feeling uh in the seventies but have felt at various points during rougher times in yeah. our country and just well, this you know, kind of like everyone is like just handcuffed by their mountains of Student loan debt and uh, credit card debt from buying Blu-rays and <laughs> uh, front row tickets to pop shows. And it would just be so great to just get off the grid and wash yourself of all that. And kill people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think people could view the some of like the taglines that they use for the film and various things as kind of like this very cavalier way to present violence. And I, I don't really know if that's, you know, the point here. I think no, it's I more mean, about kind of I this. I think you could maybe more make that argument, or I would see that argument fitting more towards like a natural born killers or something. I mean, the violence in this movie is like, it doesn't really feel real. Yeah, Most I mean, well, sometimes deaths. people feel like if it's not presented as real, then it is kind of like oh, minim- minimizing. I, I can, yeah, I guess it's I understand kind of this, that argument. and it's very cold and you know, kind of callous the way that he just kind of kills people and they kind of move on yes. without it being anything. But although it's not like he's really portrayed as like a hero in any sense, no. But I think anytime uh, it's a main character, people mistakenly ah, think that. Yes. Yeah, I mean. Obviously, you know, with the uh, song Nebraska from the Nebraska album, uh, there's a line about, you know, the Charles Starkweather-esque character saying that just at least for a little while, me and my girl, we had some fun. And that line, I think Springsteen kind of got that from this movie because I think fun is kind of referenced by Kit a few times. Yeah, yeah. at least like they thought it would be fun. Yeah. This is like their first chance to have kind of this freedom that, you know, neither of them for various reasons ever got to have in their minds. And so, well, yeah, I mean, you know, 
Holly could have been on her way to it. <laughs> well, no, I mean, obviously, I don't think the point is like, oh, that anything that I'm saying now justifies what they do. No, I know. It, because clearly they're um, selfish, self-centered characters. They don't really have any emotions towards other people. They're kind of like the starkest of portrayals of like a lost generation kind yeah. of thing. But even the love between the two isn't really... Yeah, and I mean, Enough it, for it, you it made me like, think I mean, of when I read the book about the the very comprehensive book called Columbine about the Columbine shooting, um, talking about when the actual shooting was taking place and how they had all these grand plans, the two shooters and all these, you know, it, this was some big exciting thing and they, you know, this is the next thrill for at least one of them who was like the psychopath of the two and at some point during the shooting, it, they he seemingly stopped they kind of just stopped shooting at people with the idea being, you know, that they had the thrill was gone that quickly within a matter of minutes and they were bored with it almost. And I kind of had that same feeling about Kit and especially Holly in this. It was like, well, what are they getting out of it? I, I don't know. They're, they were doing something. They were living on their own, this kind of outlaw existence. Right. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it kind of just shows kind of the At hollowness some point, of something like that. You just like want that. a house with a couch, you know. <laughs> you just want to spend. I mean, some she's a fifteen-year-old girl. Couch. I mean, she just started getting her period. Now she's yeah. got to have it in the woods, and oh. she's you know <laughs> she's got to lose her virginity to this creep. Yeah, and, I mean, oh, you know, she. Yeah. What are they wiping their asses with? Now, in the Columbine <laughs> uh, book, do, is there like any reference or notion that the two dudes are like gay? No. Okay, I've just always wondered that because it's like in. Gus Van Sant's Elephant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's just something in that movie. Okay. I didn't know if it was based on anything. I, I've never done a comprehensive study of the Columbine thing. You so should. It's fun. I was just asking the expert. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. 15-year-old chicks, man. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what could possibly, you know, bring somebody to make this kind of decision other than to just be a total creep? Right. Well, you I know. mean, the mental gymnastics that I just I these kind of dudes do to justify what they're doing, because <laughs> he was saying shit like, "Oh, you know." Well, you know, I I love at the end though when he's like, "Yeah, it's too bad about your dad, though." <laughs> <laughs> well, he's like, "Oh, you you understand things in a way that like oh, no other fifteen year old does." You she's just, listen. She's got an old soul, <laughs> but you know. By God's grace, she just happens to be beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) It's like those types of explanations and justifications. Yeah. So, I mean, if you haven't seen the film, I I would recommend checking it out. It's kind of a a callback to a different era, a different style of filmmaking that you don't really even see today. I mean, we just... Although it's way more of a normal movie than what's going on now with the Terrence Malick stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, even with like his newer movies... Uh, from the last decade or so, he seems more interested in kind of these big ideas that don't really, you know, come across very well to most viewers, and they seemingly are way too wrapped up in themselves. And you know, there isn't normal scenes and normal dialogue or anything like that, and they're a lot harder to to grasp. I mean, you you definitely have to be in a certain kind of mood to appreciate a Terrence Malick film. Oh, yeah, definitely. And some people will never be in that mood. I mean, it's just like they're not going to be for everybody. No, no, no. Uh, Yeah, it's tough. Uh, 
whenever... Although Badlands is far and away like his most normal yeah. seeming movie. Yeah, I mean it is one of those things that especially now over the past few years it's like we it's kind of like a regular thing that we go see his movies when they're in theaters and uh I don't know. It's like I will expl- like someone will ask me what I'm going to see and I'll say the movie and they'll be like, oh, a it's usually like, well, what is that? <laughs> and then I have to like explain it. And I'm like, well, you know, it's kind of like a lot of like shots of people standing in nature, not talking to each other, looking like morose and sad, walking away from each other. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, you kind of just got to like figure Some out narration right. about the universe or yeah. something and clouds, you know, usually there's people being sad and referencing dead people, uh, relationships starting and ending. And I'm like, so doesn't it sound great? <laughs> it sounds like a really fun time, right? Oh, and by the way, it's two and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I think eventually, in one form or another on this show, we'll have to tell the story of seeing Knight of Cups. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, which is a more recent uh, Malik movie starring, you know, an insane cast, Christian Bale. Oh, yeah. Uh, Natalie Portman, Kate Blanchett, etc., and it's like no one even knows what it is. One of the more fun things about Terrence Malick movies nowadays, and you know, even going back to like Thin Red Line, is to figure out who's actually in the movie by the time the final cut comes out. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, check it out if you haven't seen it. Um, we got something a little. I would say not even a little, completely different plan for next episode. Mm-hmm. It should be exciting. Yeah. Um, once again, we'll, we apologize for the downloading issue with our Hopefully podcast. We don't know what was going it, yeah. on. We unfortunately don't have much control over that. No. Um, <laughs> well, um, who knows? Maybe we do, but I, uh, well, if we do, if we so, don't know. We're completely unaware of it. Yeah. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Greatest Pod. You know, tweet at the show if you have any ideas or suggestions or Requests. comments. Yeah. Whatever. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, at least we're, we're willing to field, you know, suggestions. Oh, we'll field them. And then we'll discuss Throw it. Throw them right Zach back. Zach will say zero percent chance that we're doing that. All right. Uh, I guess that'll do it for this one. Um, and we will uh, see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.
you're not McCafe, you're McDonald's. I'm not here for a fancy cappuccino. I'm here because I burned some bridges at Wendy's. 